in Matthew chapter 16. This morning we'll be reading, starting at verse 24, and then we will read on through verse 13 of chapter 17. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow me. For whoever may desire to save his life shall, or his self, shall lose it. But whoever may lose his self on account of me shall find it. For what is a man profiting if he were to gain the whole universe and yet lose his very self? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own self? For the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each man according to His doing. Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who shall not taste death until they have seen the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, James' brother, and took them privately onto a high mountain. He was transfigured before them. His face shone as the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared before them, talking with him. Having answered, Peter said to him, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Yet while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and lo, a voice spoke from the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I have found delight. Hear him. Having heard, the disciples fell upon their faces and were terrified greatly. But having come to them, Jesus touched them and said, Arise, and do not be terrified. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except for Jesus alone. As they were descending from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered them, Elijah indeed does come first and shall restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they desired. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer from them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them concerning John the Baptist. Let's pray. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. That among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true love and true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. There are things that the Gospels tell us that are awfully perplexing. 
there are a couple events in the life of Jesus that give us pictures and testimony of a voice crying out from heaven. In hearing about the cloud and the voice from the cloud here at the transfiguration of Christ, your mind perhaps went back to the baptism of Jesus. How He came up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in the form of a dove. And a voice spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I find delight. I can't imagine seeing that scene in person. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Peter, James, and John to be taken up on that holy mountain and to see heaven opened up. To see the glory of the Son of God, this man whom they've been following. His face shining like the sun. His clothes dazzling white, brighter than the light. The text tells us they were terrified. They fell on their faces. They were scared to death. But Jesus spoke to them. Reached out His hand, touched them. Said, don't be afraid. Fear not. Be eased of your terror. Throughout the Gospels you have woven together this idea of glory and this idea of passion. You can't separate the two in the life of Jesus. To speak of His glory is to speak of His passion. That's how He spoke of His glory. In fact, on the night that He was betrayed, when Jesus told His disciples, it's time for me to be glorified. He was speaking of the time that He would be crucified. Jesus' life makes it impossible to separate this conception of brilliance and glory and honor and that of passion and suffering and hurt and loss. Jesus told His disciples, you want to follow me? That's fine. Forget about yourself. Deny your own importance. Remove yourself from the center of your life. Take up your cross and let's go where I'm going. He said this on the way to Jerusalem for that last time. He said this while trying to prepare his disciples for the fact that they were going to Jerusalem for him to die. And to die only after suffering, and only after being rejected, and only after hurting and weeping and being mocked. 
And he said, come on, let's go. You want to follow me? You have a cross to bear. And it's interesting what we do with the, that idea of taking up one's cross. We think of that as, you know, well, this headache that I have, that's my cross to bear for the day. Oh, that McDonald's put onions on my cheeseburger and I asked for no onions. That must be my cross to bear for the day. We make the cross a very trite thing. We all do it. And, and re- really, we may use the, that idea of bearing a cross metaphorically and we don't realize what we're saying, but re- we really do, most often in our heart of hearts, think that really any inconvenience in, in life is just, you know, that's part of, it's part of my being a disciple of Jesus. But when Jesus spoke of a cross, He wasn't speaking merely of inconvenience in life. Life invariably is going to be inconvenient. There are very, very, very few things in life that happen at convenient times. Birth never happens at a convenient time. You thought you were prepared. You thought the bags were packed. You thought you had everything under control. And oh my goodness, now... I've got a business meeting. In my case, I've got a Greek final. Death never happens at a convenient time. All of life is filled with inconveniences, but that's not what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He told his disciples... If you want to cling to who you are, you'll find in the end that you have lost who you are. He's not speaking here merely of life. He's not talking about our physicality. He's not talking about even just our souls. That word suke in Greek where we get the term psychology. It is the core of a person's self. And Jesus says, if you want to cling to that sense of identity, you will lose it. And if you forfeit that sense of self, that sense of identity... For me, you'll find in the end that you found it. It's amazing. Don't ask me to do the math for you on that. It's amazing how God is able to take who we are if we will but get our hands off of who we are He is able to take it into Himself. He is able to transform it. Transfigure it, so to speak. Give it beauty and meaning 
and joy and love and return it back to us as his glorious gift. At the end of days, the most joyless person, regardless of how mean or nasty or how bad or how evil that person was, the most joyless person will be that person who clings to his own life even while the sands are falling out from his fingertips. Jesus says, you want to find yourself? Give up that quest. Lose yourself in me. Lose yourself in others. Forget about yourself. Quit clinging to it. It will make you miserable. There is no end to that clinging. In the end, all you'll find is that you have nothing in your grips and you'll be even more angry. What happened? I thought I had control. That's the call to discipleship. Give up control of your life and follow this one who says his glory is in a cross. Jesus was a man of passion. We speak of Passion Week as that week that began with Palm Sunday. We sometimes call it Holy Week. We watch the film, The Passion of the Christ. We go to passion plays around Easter time. Passion is that idea of suffering. Which means movability. Things can change. Changeability. Anyone who has suffered has changed. Life changes when suffering comes. Life changes. Life is moved when bad things happen to us. So much so that normally we reevaluate our priorities, we reevaluate what we're doing with ourselves. When suffering comes and passion comes, we find ourselves being moved and shaken and changed. We find ourselves vulnerable. We find ourselves in the midst of flux. We find ourselves, as we hurt, being affected. Aristotle's unmoved mover was merely and only a step in the right direction because the scriptures speak of a God who's not some static, impassable, unable to be affected by anything in life mover. 
you read throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, God is very passionate. He gets angry. He gets hurt. He gets upset. He gets filled with joy and delight. The God of Scripture, the God who has revealed Himself in His Son Jesus, the God who brought Israel out of Egypt, is a passionate lover, not merely some unmoved mover. So much so that Paul, in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, as he's there in Athens and he walks down past and through all of those idols and all those temples dedicated to all the gods of Rome. And he goes down into the area of Pegasus and he begins speaking to the philosophers. He speaks of God as just right there. Wishing that we would just reach out and grasp and touch Him. He's not the God who's far out into the heavens. He's not the God who's unable to be touched. He is the God who has made Himself close and tangible. He is the God who has made Himself for our sakes to suffer. He is the God who will allow us to reject Him. Who will allow us to hurt Him. He is the God who will allow us, if we will, to mock Him and kill Him. And Jesus said, I find glory in that. The cross means suffering. That's a no-brainer. No one wants to die on a cross. It hurts. It brings fear. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was pleading with the Father, if there's any way, any way to redeem a world apart from this, please, please let this cup pass by me. And yet not as I will, but only as you will. The cross means suffering. It means rejection. John said, He came to His own, and yet His own did not receive Him. They said, thanks, but no thanks. We want the kingdom of God, but not that kind of kingdom. And certainly not that kind of king. We want a Messiah, God's anointed. But not if He's going to be bloodied and bruised and humiliated. Not a Messiah who's going to be mocked. No thanks, we'll pass. The cross means abandonment. One's closest friends leaving, hiding for fear. 
surrounded by only weeping women and perhaps a couple of faithful ones. Surrounded by soldiers with spears. When Christ said, you want to be my disciple, that's well and good. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He was inviting us to passion like this. Passion that means suffering, passion that means rejection, and passion that, yes, sometimes means abandonment. He was not calling us to mere inconvenience. He was calling us to a type of glory that can only be found in the giving of oneself for others. In his passion, Christ took into his very person all of the hate, all of the violence of humankind. He absorbed it into himself. In Colossians, Paul's letter in that first chapter of that amazing epistle. He makes a very interesting claim. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, my passions for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church. And he goes on talking about what he has given up and what he has suffered for the sake of the body. That amazing phrase, I am filling up in my very body, in my flesh, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What a startling image. We associate the cross with Jesus. And too often we forget that if we follow Jesus faithfully, the cross is associated also with us. And there are some afflictions that Jesus is lacking. And He's waiting us to fill them up in our bodies. It is only this type of love that can redeem a world. It is only this type of love that absorbs hate, that absorbs violence, that absorbs rejection, that absorbs suffering into itself. It is only that type of love that offers any hope and any redemption to humanity. It is only this type of self-givingness that can save a soul. It is only this type of passionate self-forfeiting 
that can rescue a person from himself. It is only in God tasting our death that He can give us His life. And the implications that are then placed upon us in being the bearers of His life to the world, those implications become a bit precarious. You want to see someone come to know Jesus? Absorb their hate into yourself. Far beyond telling the world about Jesus, you and I are beckoned to be conduits of His love. In his second New Testament epistle to the Corinthians, Paul talks about the sufferings that he had been undergoing. and he, he, he says that we suffer and we hurt and yet God comforts us in our sufferings and in our hurt. And he, he speaks of God as the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And he says He comforts us in the midst of our tribulations, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our afflictions. He is there. He is near. He gives us mercy. And He comforts us as only He can. And He says, but He does that for us so that we might able also to comfort those who also suffer. It is... Through the church that God offers hope to the world. It is through the church that God offers His nearness to the world. It is through the church that God offers His comfort in the midst of pain and hurt and loss and rejection. And I think too often, we the church settle for merely preaching on Sunday mornings. Or merely leading studies. Or merely wanting to give someone a tract or tell someone about Jesus. And we forget the fact that we are called to bear Jesus' hurts. And to therefore bear the hurts of the world in ourselves. And what the world needs is people who are willing to deny themselves and love the world as Jesus did. It is only then that the world can see a Redeemer who loves them more than He loves Himself. It's in that type of love that Jesus found His glory. John in his account of the gospel, on that night that Jesus was betrayed, he said that having loved his own, he loved them to the bitter end. He loved them perfectly. Fully, completely, 
without limit. And then John says he <coughs> stood up after dinner or supper, Jim. He stood up, he took a towel, he girded himself, and he began washing their feet. Serving them in humility. The question before each of us, you, me, the entirety of this body. The question before us is, will you, will you, Adam, take seriously the call to discipleship, the call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? Because that call is not some simple call to get involved in a small group. That call is not some simple call to get involved in showing up for church each Sunday. That call is not some simple call to be a little bit more committed. Read your Bible a little bit more. Make sure you pray every day. Preferably in the morning. After all, it's good to start the day well. Typically you'll end it well. That's not the call to discipleship. The call to discipleship is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. The call to discipleship is if you want to hang on to yourself, you had better let go of yourself and lose yourself in Him and in others. And only then will you find yourself. The call to discipleship is the call to a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull, and a call to a cross stained with blood. The cross bids us come, suffer a while, taste rejection. Feel what it is to be abandoned. And yet the call of the cross is a call to passionate glory. And a glorious passion. The question that we're asked, you, me, the entirety of this body, is will you Adam, take into yourself the poisonous rejection of others. As Jesus did. For that type of love alone is what saves. That type of love that type of life lived in Christ alone is the hope of the world. 
will we? Let's pray.